Proverbs 9 from verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maids, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. Come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through me your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. The woman folly is loud. She is undisciplined and without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. This is God's word. We're in Proverbs 9. It's the last little look we'll have at this section of Proverbs. We've spent uh, a couple of months really looking at the, the, the prologue of chapters 1 to 9. little break after Easter. We'll go topical and look at some of the, uh, the recurrent themes of friendship and speech and uh, use of the tongue and work, etc., etc., after Easter. So that last little look at the book of Proverbs for now. Let's pray as we begin. Father, none of us here want to be simple. Uh, we want to be wise. So again, we thank you that you, you're a speaking God who has uh, given us these words to help us be wise. Thank you that your spirit presents them uh, to afresh to our hearts today. Would you shape us to be people who are wise and therefore love you and live for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, I guess once again, then in this section, we're presented with a fairly stark choice in the uh, the book of Proverbs. Here it's two women. Two women with their dinner invites. Would you like to have dinner with uh, Lady Wisdom or the woman Folly? And it's stark. Now, most of us don't really live our lives that way, I guess. We don't 100% live Wisdom, 100% live Folly. We kind of oscillate a little bit between the two. But it's presented as a very stark choice. Over 70 times in the book of Proverbs, we're brought to this fork in the road. Will you choose Wisdom? Or folly, so often presented as a choice. And it's a choice in one sense we make on a daily basis. Now here, this last chapter, it's, as I say, it's the last uh, uh, last chapter. Then in the in the prologue of uh, one to nine, verse ten onwards, you can see it gets the more familiar, perhaps one-liners. Um, it starts off chapter ten, verse one, with uh, Solomon's proverbs. But here, then, at the conclusion of the prologue, two women very obviously contrast it. So Lady Wisdom in chapter 9, 1 to 6, sitting at the high point, calling out. And the woman Folly, 
verses 13 to 18, doing many of the same things, sitting at the high point, calling out. If you want it, it's fairly obvious. There's a contrast between these two women. One of the things I've wrestled with this week, what verses 7 to 12, why are they there in the middle? It's not quite so obvious. You've got these two women, but then this other little section. When we get there, I think what's going on is there's a fundamental choice you make between wisdom and folly, and that sets you on a direction. Your character will develop and become a little hardened in those two ways. So I think it works a bit like this. Uh, verses 1 to 6, you've got Lady Wisdom. At the end, 13 to 18, you've got Lady Folly. Then verses 7 to 9, you've got the wise man against the mocker. Verse 12, you've got the wise man against the mocker. And in the center, you've got the fundamental call again, the fear of the Lord. So I think it works a bit like a sandwich or chiasm. You've got the two women, two characters that will develop, either a wise man or a mocker. One place to start, the fear of the Lord. I think that's how it works. And that's, that's the, how we're going to work through it. So three little sections. First, we contrast these two women. You've got the invitation of wisdom versus the imitation of folly. Invitation of wisdom versus the imitation of folly. Now, clearly then, uh, th- these two women are personified, uh, or wisdom is personified as these two women. The, the similarity is obvious. So verse... Um, they both sit in the high point of the city, but you notice they said precisely the same thing. So chapter 9, verse 4, wisdom says, let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. Verse 16, folly says, let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. The obvious point, you need to be discerning. You need to be discerning. People will come and present things that look like wisdom. Folly doesn't have a little jester's hat with bells on. It's not when you uh, open your newspaper and uh, read an opinion piece, you think, oh, that sounds wise. It's not sort of next to it printed, little jester's hat. Looks, sounds wise, but you know, hoo, hoo, hoo. actually it's very silly underneath. It's inconsistent. It doesn't do that. It's You need to exercise a little bit of discernment here. Because at first glance, wisdom and folly look the same. No one says, I'm really stupid, listen to me. I'll destroy your life, come and spend some time with me. You need to be discerning. That's the point, at first glance, they look the same. So scratch a little bit under the surface though, they are different. Different in a number of ways. So firstly, their preparation. Look at wisdom. She is industrious. So chapter 9, verse 1, wisdom has built her house. She, she has hewn out its seven pillars. That's just a lot. It's a sturdy house. She's prepared. She's put some effort in. She's prepared her meat. She's mixed her wine. She knows how to um, uh, get a good claret out of Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot by mixing the two of them together. She's talented. She's set her table. She's sent out her maid. She's busy, hardworking, industrious woman you have here. By contrast, what's folly done to prepare for, you, for the meal? Nothing. No preparation. So Folly sits at her doorway and scoffs. Busy, busy wisdom. Always working. How silly. How silly. Just come and steal some stuff and have a good time with me. Wisdom's very hard working. Come and have a laugh. Come and have a laugh with me. It's much more fun 
over here, she says, in her preparation. Or secondly, the, the, what, what actually is on offer. What does folly say? Folly offers stolen, stolen things. So verse 17, stolen water sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. Do you do realize, don't you, that the meal you go out for on the expense account, you're not meant to. It's much more fun because it's a little bit naughty. You know, the extramarital affair, far more exciting because of its clandestine nature. Far more fun, says the woman folly. Wisdom's offer. Well, you come and have what I've prepared. You don't need to pay for it. But verse 6, you will need to leave your simple ways. You'll have to change if you want to eat with me. There'll have to be repentance, I guess you could say. So in their preparation, and then actually what's on offer, wisdom is industrious and says, you have to change if you want to dine with me. Folly says, just come and sit down. Let's nick stuff and have a good time. So superficially, there's some appeal to that. Hard work, industry, change. Don't change. Just live off other people. There's some appeal to the woman who's folly. You need to be discerning. Folly will often appear to be wisdom. So just think of naff little soundbites that people use. You need to be true to yourself. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? True. True's a good thing. Me, I'm a good thing. True to myself must be a good thing. Apart from what does that mean? I mean, it's nonsense. What does that mean? I'll be true to myself. What, at the expense of being untrue to other people? I'll be true to myself. Well, but the man who came and mugged me in the street says, I've just got to steal your possessions. I'm being true to myself. Well, I don't like it so much now. True to your, I'm going to be true to myself and stuff any sense of community. Well, okay, maybe that's not so good. But at first glance, it sounds a little appealing. I was reading, uh, I mean, may not made so much fuss over here, but um, uh, of uh, the latest book by Katie Royf. That's how you present her name. Uh, she's a U.S. journalist uh, based in New York, writes for New Yorker. But I was reading about her latest book, which is called In Praise of Messy Lives. And essentially, it's a whole book saying, people are boring, and if you have a chaotic life, it's a lot more fun. So, quote, I'm a failed conventional person, but having two different children by two different dads has made me exotic. I find that liberating. Much more fun, she says, to have, you know, to do things differently. I mean, no comment on, do you know what, being a single mum, it's quite hard. Do you know what? Having two dads, two different children, that's quite, it's quite complicated. I'm exotic. Really. Well done. But it's presented as wisdom. You need to be discerning. So their preparations are different, what they offer are different, and of course when you come to their outcome, there the difference is most starked. So dine with wisdom and verse 6. Oh, you'll live. You'll walk in the way of understanding. Dine with folly, verse 18. Oh, you'll die. Her guests are in the depths of the grave. Oh. Perhaps you looked a little, perhaps you'd have scratched a little deeper before accepting that dinner invitation. 
Uh, I read a little re- while ago about a chap called Dave Weaving. Dave Weaving is a 40-year-old man in, um, in Norwich. Probably not the sharpest tool, but anyway, let's not pass judgment. But a 40-year-old man in Norwich, um, seeking romance, went on the internet and struck up a friendship with Bunty. Uh, Bunty was, uh, lived in Atlanta in the States. And they struck up a friendship and in her photographs online, Bunty was an attractive woman of a similar sort of age, similar sort of age. So over a period of months, they, they built up a relationship. He found himself sharing things that he'd never shared with anyone else with Bunty and she reciprocated and they, they both declared their love for one another over the internet. And so Dave Weaving saved his pennies and thought, enough's enough, uh, and bought his ticket to Atlanta with the full intention of proposing. Came out of the plane, came in and uh, arrivals, couldn't see Bunty anywhere. And then after a while, it emerged who she was. She was the 77-year-old woman who had been a little less than honest um, with some of the things she'd posted, but feeling somewhat sorry for her and also somewhat emotionally engaged. He did, bizarrely, go back to her house and they had several cups of tea together and she declared to him, Dave, I'm so sorry I've lied, but you are the man I want to spend the rest of my life with. And that's it, no more secrets. I, I just want to start with the clean set. Let me take you to the basement. There's just one other thing I need to show you. Went down to the basement. Uh, there was a big trunk freezer in the corner. Opened the freezer. There was a dead husband in the freezer. She just, I, I, I killed him a few years ago, but I haven't told anyone because I'm still claiming his pension. Now that's a romance killer, isn't it? Right there. I mean, at that point, Dave's got to be thinking, ooh, ooh, perhaps this isn't the woman for me. Perhaps I should have scratched the surface a little harder before getting involved emotionally with Bunty, who he did persuade to go to the police, fortunately. And the writer is saying here, if you spend your life dining with folly as she imitates wisdom, Eternal death is your destiny. Don't be naive. Don't be simple. Be discerning and dine with wisdom. There's an invitation of wisdom and the imitation of folly. Let's get to these middle verses then and see how they fit into it. So uh, the second little thing, um, verses 7 to 12, I guess you'd say, there's the mocker against the wise man. And again, I think what is being emphasized here are, you don't ruin your life by one bad decision. One dinner with one woman doesn't destroy your life, be she folly or wisdom. But it puts you on a pathway. You start walking and your character will be formed and it'll end up somewhere like this. Obviously, there's a bit of a difference here in these verses. So verses 7 to 9, uh, addressing teachers. Don't bother to try to teach someone who's a mocker. Verse 12 is addressing the learner. If you're wise, your wisdom will reward you if you are a mocker. So there's a difference. But essentially, the contrast, wisdom, mocker. Now, I was intrigued by this. I did a bit more work this week then on the negative terms uh, that the book of Proverbs uses. And you can overplay this. So this is... This is probably true, uh, that it works like this, okay. But of the five main terms that get used recurrently, they do seem to descend in their stupidity. So there are five different words. They sometimes, they can all get translated fool, actually, in the book. But in the Hebrew, five different words. Let me just give you some comment. So you get the simple, 
they're sort of in the middle. You're, you're, you're just, you're a floating voter, as it were, just on the wrong side. So do notice that uh, wisdom appeals to the simple, verse 4. She appeals to the simple, verse 6. Look, before you really descend upon the path of, of folly, let me speak to you. There's the simple. Then you get the unlearning fool. And a number of references that they just make the same mistakes over and over again. They never learn. They're just a bit silly. They never hold on to their money. So someone who's daft rather than malicious. You descend and there's the cocksure fool who's arrogant. Well, uh, that's a bit too strong. Who doesn't like advice. Who laughs at goodness. You descend a bit further into the one who is arrogant. So he's lambasted for his pride. So a little cross-reference, Psalm 14, verse 1. It is the fool in his heart says there is no God. That's the that fool, the, uh, the same word that's used there. And then eventually, the worst term in the book of Proverbs is the mocker. Incapable of learning. And if you read through the references to the mocker in the book, they destroy relationships. Ruin a city. Break up brothers. They're the worst of the fools in the book. And here it's the mocker. And I think the point of this sort of, and I think that it's, you can overplay the differences between the words, but I think there is a descent generally as the pattern. What's the point of that? You, wisdom and folly are pathways. You start, not malicious, just a little bit silly, a little bit naive. Before you know it, your character has developed. So familiar character. The, uh, Nick Leeson was the first of, of the uh, the rogue traders, the sensational rogue traders, of course, destroyed Bearings Bank back in 95, losses of just short of 830 million, twice uh, their uh, trading uh, capital. Uh, it's interesting you read a little about Nick Leeson. He, he left school without passing a single maths exam. Oops. Um, but managed to lie his way into a job with Coots Bank. Eventually ended up at Bearings Bank. He applied to be a broker, was refused a broker's license in the UK because he had fraudulently filled in his form. So he just, little lie, slightly bigger lie. Because he couldn't get a broker's license in the UK, they sent him out to Singapore. One or two little lies out there rose to run the desk. Uh, then a fairly significant moment, one of his team made a loss of £20,000. He said, well, don't worry. Let's just hide it away in this loss account. I'll create an account, what became known as his five-eighths account, because that was its number. We just hired that little loss there. We'll make it up, 20,000. Don't worry about it, of course he said. Then he started to hide his own losses in the five-eighths account. So by 92, the losses were 2 million. By the end of 94, losses of 200 million. By mid-95, losses hit just short of 830 million. Just a little lie. Just to get him, you know, just to get a job. Slightly larger lie. Until you're making lies worth hundreds of millions of pounds. Destroying a bank of hundred years old and taking other people's jobs with it. It starts quite small. You start off simple. But if you don't learn and listen, you descend. You become arrogant. You become a mocker. You're every sort of fool if you fail to learn. So I think the reason these verses 7 to 12 are here are to show that we're not saved or lost by one impulsive action, one meal with the wrong woman, but, you know, in the old adage, you sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. 
you sow a character, you reap a destiny. And that is very much the perspective of the book of Proverbs. So the mocker then is the worst. The mocker is the worst. He's in a bad way, insensitive to wisdom. He causes all sorts of strife. He's overweening pride. And so here in verses 9, seven downwards, wisdom doesn't bother talking to the mocker. She knows it's too late. Wisdom appeals to the simple. Because verses 7 and 8, whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse. There is no point. Now, culturally, we like mocking. And sometimes it can be, I mean, teasing can be funny. Mocking quirky things, I guess, is, is quite fun. Mocking things that people can't help, of course, is abhorrent. Mocking people's squint or whatever it is. But mocking generally, we like to mock. Lots of our comedy is based around mocking. But of course, mockery in one sense is just a refusal to engage your brain. I may have used this before, I couldn't quite remember. But here's something I, I found on Richard Dawkins' website. I thought it was quite interesting talking to his followers. We need to go beyond humorous ridicule. We need to sharpen our barbs to a point when they really hurt. Abandon the irremediably religious. I'm more interested in the fence-sitters who haven't really considered the questions very long or very carefully. They are likely to be swayed by a display of naked contempt. Nobody likes to be laughed at. Nobody wants to be the butt of... Mockery. It's very interesting as a strategy, isn't it? Don't engage people on the level of ideas. Just mock them, says Richard Dawkins. That'll stop anyone listening to the Christian faith. Just mock them, and people will just, oh, I don't want to engage with this. It can't be true. Worth knowing that, isn't it? That that's certainly one of the strategies that he would choose to use. If you're a Christian, don't be intimidated by that. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, just worth knowing that that's what the man is trying to do, he and like-minded folk. Not interested in honest dialogue, mockery that'll just make people turn off. Don't be surprised. And in one sense, when someone gets to the level of mockery, wisdom would say that there's, there's, there's a limited amount you can do with them. They're so entrenched in their opinions, you can be wasting your time. By contrast, the wise man will love you. Verse 9, instruct a wise man. Sorry, verse 8. Uh, do not rebuke a mocker or hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Does anyone here genuinely love being rebuked? Well, I'm not, I'm not saying we're all unwise, but I, I, I take it the wise man hears a rebuke and doesn't immediately say, I love you for being so blunt with me. The wise man goes away and reflects and thinks, yeah, yeah, you know, there's probably some truth in that. That's wisdom. But Proverbs would say there is no growth in wisdom unless you can acknowledge your errors. And if you don't listen to criticism, you are doomed to make the same mistakes over and over again. So, verse 9, instruct a wise man, he'll be wiser still. Wisdom's like a journey. You never arrive. You never complete, ah, I am now all wise. No one ever reaches that. 
the wise man is on a journey and knows it, gets wiser all his days long, all the days long. And the wiser you get, well, eventually, verse 12, if you're wise, your wisdom will reward you. I take it that means the wiser you get, instinctively you make good decisions. So wisdom is its own reward, because you just do the right thing, and you do it quickly, and you get, get it right. Okay, word searches are limited of some use, I guess. You get to the New Testament, and it struck me, the word Christian, which is what we, if you're a Christian, it's kind of what you are, and that's how we get labelled. But Christian, of course, in the New Testament, is used three times. Mainly as a pejorative term. Plenty of other words get used for the believer in the New Testament. Believer would be one. Children of God, sons, daughters, saints, lots of words get used. The most common? Disciple. Just sort of 300 times. Christian's a disciple of Jesus Christ, a learner, lifelong. So we need to hear rebukes. Now let's be honest, I mean just sort of sense of realism here. Rebukes or correction, some are easy, some are less easy to hear. So there's a sort of spectrum, isn't there? At the moment, somewhat ridiculously, given my age, I'm uh, having swimming lessons got a bit fed up with being overtaken by people twice my age. So uh, I am paying a man to rebuke me. I am asking him, will you please rebuke me and I'll even hand over my money so that you rebuke or correct me. Obviously that's a, a good thing. Enjoy that. You move along the spectrum a little bit. I'm not particularly competent with a computer. Anyone in the office can tell you that. So rebuke me or correct me with a computer. I'm generally I'm very open to that and amenable. It would speed things up. That's good. Uh, that works. You move a little further on. It might, something like my preaching. Well, I want to get better, always. So I'm happy to take correction, but, you know, it is what I do for a living, so not too much. Please. Not too forceful. Kindly, gently, and I'll be amenable. You move further along. And my character. Oh, right. All oh, right, you want to, you got some suggestions to make on my character. Well, okay. Yes, well, let's do that then. And while we're at it, I've got some helpful advice for you. <laughs> as well, because, um, well, if we're going, two of us can play at that game quite easily, you know. And mentally, we slightly put on our flak jackets and draw our guns and think, okay, you're coming at me, I'm ready. Because some things matter a bit more. So in some, you know, you don't, let's not be naive and say, yeah, I, I take all sorts of correction. You know, at work, these, these, my, you know, these things get corrected. And that's fine. And, you know, this, yeah, I, I can take correction. Over here, you must be joking. Just being honest on that. The instinct is to defend ourselves. Of course, if we fight back, can I just make a suggestion about how how you relate to your wife in public, how you talk about others, how you whatever it can make it. If we roar back, that's probably the last time anyone does that. You know what I tried to I tried to gently point something out to Matt Fuller the other day. He gave me a lot of abuse. That's probably the last time I'll do that. See, then you don't learn anything. You've got to be willing to take it. 
for myself. I think the most useful thing I ever learned, uh, well, about, probably about 15 years ago from an older preacher, a chap, Dick Lucas, some would know, the criticism. Three E's, all you need to know, brother, three E's, expect it, evaluate it, endure it. Brilliant advice. Brilliant advice. You could t- uh, he was talking generally about being a minister, but almost anything in life, expect criticism because you'll always annoy someone. Evaluate it. Because not all, but most criticism, if it comes with hostility, has a kernel of truth that's blown out of all proportions. It's worth evaluating, thinking, yeah, yeah, there's something in that. Not all. Some criticism is just ridiculous. But endure it. Carry on. Don't be thrown. Evaluate it. Think, I can make some change and then just carry on. That's very useful advice. So very briefly, just let me ask you, who corrects you? In things that matter, character, patterns of life, lifestyle, who corrects you? Anyone? Are you open to correction from anyone? Is there anyone who's got permission to come alongside your life and say, I just, I may be wrong, but I wonder if you've developed this as a pattern. I've observed that. You keep doing this, saying this. Have you thought about that? Is there anyone you've got permission to do that in your life? Or you just roar back at everyone? Or just don't let anyone get that close? And when was the last time you changed as a result of being corrected or rebuked? Think of any time? Can't think of any time that you've been changed by a correction or rebuke in your character, in your lifestyle? Well, be careful you're not a fool say the writer of Proverbs. The, the wise one is, is open to correction. So here the promise or the warning ultimately of verse 12, if you're wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you're a mocker, you alone will suffer. Look, if you're a mocker, you'll annoy other people and you will have an impact upon them. But eventually, you know, you will suffer. Because you'll be left with your character. And you can't buy a new character. You can't trade character. It's who you are. It determines your destiny. Don't walk down the path of folly and end up an unlistening mocker. Very briefly as we finish then. It says the invitation of the two women, or the invitation of wisdom, the invitation of folly, the mocker versus the wise man. Last then, the fear of the Lord. Verse 10, here's the place where it all begins. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One, understanding. Fear. As we said when we looked at chapter 1, not a cowering fear, but a reverence. A reverence. Important for Christian living. When, uh, you know, two Corinthians, let me give you check out some references. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11, Paul can say, What earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what indignation, what fear. Entirely appropriate for the Christian to have this sort of fear. Colossians 3, verse 22, slaves obey everything. In everything, those are your earthly masters with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Entirely appropriate for the Christian to have that sort of fear. Philippians 2, verse 12, beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Entirely appropriate. A reverence. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, When I was a child, I was uh, willful. It was not my fault. I was given too many E numbers. 
probably. But I was certainly a willful child, and one of my, I can vividly remember, uh, school holidays in particular of a certain age. I'll be at home with mum, and dad will be out at work, and I would be unkind, and unruly, and not listen to what she said, and be at all, you know, be just to be a complete pain, naughty during the day. And so she would issue those immortal words, wait till your father gets home. Now that, those were significant words. Because my dear father would come home. And I loved him. And he was big, and he was strong, and he was everything I wanted to be. And so he would arrive, you know, I would be eight or something. He would arrive, hi, I'd run, you know, manly embrace kind of, age eight. And it'd be nice and pleasant, and I love my dad. And then mum would ruin it by saying, I need to tell you what your son has done today. And that was it. It was ruined. The moment was ruined because I knew that my, that moment, the, the pleasure of seeing my father tainted and his discipline was consistent. Let's put it that way. It's ruined. And so, of course, my mother learned all she needed to say really was, you do that one more time. And I will pick up the telephone and ring your father now. What? During the day? During the day? He'll be furious. Don't do that during the day. Powerful words. Now there's a sense in which that is the right fear of the Lord. There is both an enormous affection that you don't want disrupted, but a reverence for who he is. He is not a pussycat. Yes, of course, as, as if you're a Christian, the New Testament would say, yes, Jesus Christ calls you his friend, and the Father calls you his son, his daughter, but he is still a God to be feared. He is still the Almighty. Don't mess with him. And so businessmen worry about the verdict of stockholders and politicians worry about the verdict of voters, but Christians worry about the verdict of their father. There is a a reverent love. There is a fear and affection with him. I asked a friend of mine recently, he's in the army, he travels quite a lot. Uh, it's a current sort of job. He'll be away for a week back, then away for two weeks, then back. I, I said to him, what keeps you godly when you're away? And what keeps you pure when you're away? His answer was interesting. It was a mixed answer. He said, I do a ridiculous amount of exercise. <laughs> Practical, very helpful. But I think of my wife and kids and the disappointment if they were with me when I did something that I'd regret. And I do think of my God and think of the disappointment if he were there with me, which he is. And I don't want to do that. I can see more vividly the faces of my family than I can see the face of God, but I don't want to let any of them down. And the Christian fears the Lord so at the moment of, do I do the daft thing or the wise thing? I, I don't want to let my father down. I don't want to disappoint him. Love him. And fear him. Because he's very generous. 
He's very generous. Verse 5 is a lovely offer, isn't it? It's a gospel offer that wisdom makes, uh, the lady wisdom. Verse 5, come eat my food, drink the wine I've mixed. Come enjoy the banquet without cost. That's the gospel offer. Come and enjoy forgiveness and a relationship with God until which you bring nothing. Jesus Christ has done it all by dying on the cross for you. You contribute nothing. Enjoy this forgiveness without cost. Oh, listen, simple one, you'll need to turn around. Of course you need to repent and embrace him, but do so and you'll live. Jesus Christ has been very kind in the banquet he offers. Of course, I guess in the language at the end of the chapter, he is the one who descended to the grave so that we might live eternally rather than die eternally. So fear him. Love him. Hold those two together. A reverent love. Fear the Lord. Be discerning who you listen to. Become wise. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'd forgive us if we think we're wiser than we are. Forgive us if we're impervious to criticism or rebuke or correction. Would we be wise? Would we hear the uh, the rebukes of friends? Be even willing to hear the rebukes of those hostile and learn what we can. And Father, give us discernment, we pray. So we recognize the difference between lady wisdom and the woman folly. We scratch beneath the surface, see what they truly offer, and walk wisely, knowing that you are a God wonderfully to be loved, wonderfully to be feared. Would we walk in your paths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.